Hello, and welcome to Ashrit Parvangada's Tipping Points, a podcast where we explore world tipping points that brought us to where we are today. In our last episode, we looked at how Mansa Musa's trip went from fabulous to embarrassing, and then after his death, from embarrassing to successful in a place that he couldn't have expected, Europe. And with the added effect of the bubonic plague destroying Europe's labor force and economy, by the late 1300s, Mansa Musa's kingdom of Mali looks like a place that can solve many of Europe's problems. The race to find the river of gold is on, and this episode is called From Humble Beginnings. Here we go. The history which most well-respected historians of today agree upon is different than the one I was taught. Europe had not leapt greatly onto the world stage, but started with humble beginnings as a minor region, globally speaking. Now, I say this not to belittle the struggles we're about to explore. For European explorers of the time, the stakes were life and death. And this comes through in the larger-than-life writing passed down by those people. The humble beginnings I refer to are a 60-year time period from 1400, which coincides with the life of a prince of a country also small and humble, even by European standards of the day. Portugal. Prince Henry the Navigator, as he's known, will make an outsized change to the fate of Europe and the world. He's the man credited with initiating the Age of Discovery, But before the man, let's rewind to the boy. When Prince Henry was a child, he probably developed an early emotional relationship towards a group known as the Barbary Pirates. Barbary, or in other words, Berber, ethnic groups in North Africa who predate the Arabs, had a thriving slave trade targeted at the Mediterranean coast and West Africa. They would do the raiding by ship, hence their pirates, and they would sell the slaves in North Africa. And they got a lot of these slaves from Europe. It's difficult for us to imagine now, knowing how history went, but what this means is that for centuries, there were households in North Africa who had European slaves. Barbary targets were any non-Muslims, be they Christian Europeans or tribal Africans, it made little difference. After all, in the way the Muslim faith was practiced through the Middle Ages, a non-believer, a kafir, who is captured in a holy war, a jihad, can be enslaved. And the holy wars between Muslim North Africa and Christian Europe were never-ending, and so the slave trade was perpetual. So these Barbary pirates raided Britain, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, along with parts of Africa, and according to Robert Davis in his work, British slaves on the Barbary coast, through the centuries, these pirates would enslave roughly a million people, 
Though other historians question these numbers, it would suffice to say that it was in the hundreds of thousands ballpark. I should also add the Muslim perspective here. These pirates, quote-unquote, were not actually pirates, but they were holy warriors sponsored by the Mamluks and the Ottomans to wage a holy war in the sea. In their eyes, they were saving Muslims and Jews from Christian brutality in Spain, which is also true. Jews were not treated well across Europe, including in Spain. To the Muslims of North Africa, the Spanish were seen as barbarians who brutalized both Muslims and Jews in Iberia. So there's a lot of disagreement between historians on this topic of who exactly the Barbary pirates were, but the truth likely lies somewhere in between. Now, one of the major bases of these Barbary pirates was the Moroccan city of Ceuta. Today it's a Spanish city, but it lies on the landmass of North Africa and it sits where you would imagine Morocco, and at the time a Moroccan empire called the Marinid owned this city. The city is about 15 kilometers from the Spanish coastline. Because of their proximity with Portugal and Spain, often raided Portugal and Spain and would devastate villages and capture slaves. This is a big problem Prince Henry would grow up seeing and hearing about in his father's kingdom. Not only is it a contemporary problem for him, but also a historical one. After all, it was Berber, Barbary, forces led by Arabs who conquered Spain in the 710s. Christian forces started a reconquista of Iberia in 722, which was centuries long and brutal, and in 1400, during the childhood of Prince Henry, it's still not over. It would only end at the end of the 1400s, after Prince Henry had already passed away. So when you look at cities like, say, Grenada or Cordoba in Spain, and you see the Muslim influences, it's because Berbers and Arabs had invaded Spain in the seven, early 700s, and this Reconquista in the 1400s is still going on where they're trying to recapture and reconquer places, including Ceuta in North Africa. Henry's chance for revenge and glory will come soon. When Henry is only 15 years old, in 1409, his father, King John I, starts planning a Reconquista of a weakened Ceuta, all three of the princes, Henry and his two brothers, are delighted at the possibility of wealth, fame, and probably of some kind of emotional revenge as well. By 1415, the Portuguese are prepared with an army of 20,000 soldiers and 30,000 other men of fortune. These men set off for Ceuta. Now you'd think we're about to see an epic battle between the Marinids and the Portuguese, but Unfortunately for the governor of Ceuta and the inhabitants, the Sultan of Morocco doesn't send his army to defend the city. Likely because the governor of Ceuta was becoming too independent for the Sultan's liking. Let the city burn, then Ceuta's on my landmass anyway, my meaning the Moroccans, will just reconquer the place. And that would be a reasonable thing to think on his side. The Sultan of Morocco tries a few years later to capture it again, but fails. Maybe he should have helped the first time around. So yeah, we've got 50,000 Portuguese soldiers ready for battle versus up to 100,000 
mostly civilians and tribes people and religious leaders. That goes to show that by popular opinion, this city did not want to be taken over by the Portuguese. Such was likely the reputation that Iberian Christians had built for themselves when dealing with the Muslim people left over in Spain and Portugal after Reconquista. In the assault, the king injures his leg, and so he sends a 21-year-old Prince Henry to lead the charge in his place. Eventually, the governor of Ceuta sees no hope and flees, and the Portuguese conquer the city. Prince Henry made such a name for himself during this battle that the king of England, the Pope, a king Sigismund in Germany, and the Spanish king, John II, would all offer him command of their armies. He refuses them all. Now, you don't refuse a bunch of larger countries offering you prestigious positions without reason. Portugal's a small place. Perhaps Henry felt he could achieve his dream as a prince in Portugal. And his dream is to discover Mansa Musa's River of Gold. After all, which country has a better geography to start than Portugal? In 1415, Ceuta is an important medieval city for multiple reasons. And most importantly for Prince Henry, Ceuta is the final trading post for gold originating from Mali, the late Mansa Musa's kingdom. Berbers, they would pick up gold from Mali, cross the Sahara on camelback, and trade it at Ceuta, from where it was traded with the whole world, the Portuguese thought that they could take Ceuta and finally get access to that final stop of gold. Unfortunately for them, Muslim Berbers aren't about to trade with a now Christian-ruled city. Not to mention that the city was used by their pirate cousins, many of whom are probably now dead. So the Berber traders changed their final stop from Ceuta 12 or 15 kilometers west to a city known as Tangier. Aside from this, Prince Henry is interested in bigger things. He doesn't want the final stop in the gold trade. He wants to find the source, the river of gold. So Henry and his father, the king, send some of their most trusted knights along the West African coast in excursions. These trips are small in nature, one or two caravels, which contain about 10 people each, less than the size of a modern football team. The caravel was a ship that was an improvement in shipbuilding technology. It has a triangular sail called a lateen, which allows it to sail towards the wind. According to Elbel and Martin's book, The Portuguese Caravel and European Shipbuilding, it might have been inspired by Muslim ships. So I'll stress again, Humble beginnings is where Europe is coming from. So the knights of Prince Henry and his father go out exploring the northwest African coast on these caravels, and over the next couple of decades, they inch their way down the Moroccan coast, discovering little islands along the way. For example, in 1418, just three years after Ceuta, a storm blows some of Prince Henry's explorers off course and they end up in Madeira, uninhabited islands which Portugal then settled and owns to this day. 
Simultaneously, as the Portuguese are discovering islands like Madeira, the Spanish are making gains in the Canary Islands. And while the Portuguese discovered the islands of Madeira, which were uninhabited, and they'll settle it fairly easily, relatively speaking, the Spanish Canaries were not uninhabited. There were people living there, a tribal people called the Guanches. So no guns or cannons or ships or metal. They're described by a contemporary account as being primeval. You might be thinking, a mighty European state like the Spanish versus a few tribals will be easy pickings. Well, it isn't. Let's play a guessing game. If you were to take a guess of how long it takes Spain, that would one day conquer most of the world, to defeat a bunch of tribals, how long would you say? One year? Two years? Considering what I said just now, which sets high expectations, you might even guess 10 years. And that seems like a generous amount of time. A few hiccups, and then you send in the big guns, and it's a job well done. Well, it will take 100 years for the Spanish to exterminate or enslave all of the natives of the Canary Islands. The natives beat the Spanish in a number of battles, but in the end, they will be exterminated. The Guanches are today a lost culture. They don't exist anymore. And the Canary Islands are today still inhabited by the Spanish. It's known as a popular holiday destination in Europe, but it is important to note that they are the site of a historical genocide. Now, it taking a hundred years for the Spanish to beat a bunch of quote-unquote primevals means partly that these tribals were actually more capable than we know tribals to be, but a large part of it is also because European states that we now think of as world conquerors aren't nearly as capable in 1420 as popular history would suggest. Now, while the long genocide is going on in the Canaries, the Portuguese would continue to explore the northwest African coast. In 1427, they would also discover the Azure Islands, about 1,000 kilometers off the Portuguese coast. These islands are also uninhabited, and the Portuguese would get to work on settling them fairly quickly, just like they did with Madeira. They used this island and all of the islands they are discovering to grow crops, and to continue exploring Africa after having resupplied. The Portuguese are now officially closing in on the most famous point of no return, which we spoke about in the last episode, Cape Bojador, the Cape of Danger, which no European ship had been able to cross for probably more than a thousand years, perhaps going back to Hanno of Carthage. Prince Henry sends 15 expeditions to round Cape Bojador, all of which are unsuccessful, until finally a breakthrough. In 1434, Gil Eanes becomes the first European to cross Cape Bojador in a very long time at least. He does this not by hugging the coast, as caravels normally do, but by sailing a bit out to sea to avoid the dangerous coastal waters. And then he circles back around the Cape, perhaps against winds and against the current, which is something that a caravel can do. This is momentous. This is nearly 60 years since the making of the Catalan Atlas, 
20 years after Ceuta was conquered, just to get around the southern tip of Morocco. So again, humble beginnings. The Spanish, French, and British will eventually follow the Portuguese route around Cape Bojador. Exploring the West African coast beyond the Cape, so now they're on the other side and this is all fresh new territory. But most of what they encounter is the Sahara Desert. It's not very resource rich, but you still have to pay your bills, right? You're building ships, you're sending men, they need to be fed, clothed, so you enslave a bunch of tribals. Remember, Europe's labor market is starving and slaves are valuable. There's a great story that comes out of this early time period of maritime exploration and slaving, which helps, again, put the powers that be in scale. In 1441, Henry the Navigator sends a Portuguese explorer named Antao Gonzalves, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, to explore the West African coast under the command of a man named Tristão. Gonzalves has a junior role. Tristão is his boss. So Gonzalves gets relegated to not so much exploring, but to hunting monk seals, which were a resource found on the West African coast. Now perhaps Gonzalves feels like he can do better, so on his own initiative, he decides to capture some Africans. He, along with a crew of nine, managed to capture one man and his servant woman. Tristau, his boss, then sees the value of his idea, and the two crews of their ships work together to capture ten tribespeople. One of the people they captured was a noble. So the Portuguese crew decides to ransom him to the local people. You want your noble back? Give us some money. The Portuguese send an expedition with an Arab crew member, maybe because the Arab would command more respect and familiarity from the Africans. So this Arab goes out as a messenger, right, for this ransom deal. And the next they see of this Arab is when the natives themselves come back to the coast with the Arab enslaved. Touché. Unable or unwilling to make the trade, Gonzalves takes the ten slaves back to Portugal instead of giving them for ransom. He presents the ten slaves to the Portuguese court, who are so impressed with his haul of ten slaves that they give Gonzalves a governorship for just ten slaves. This is the state of the leading maritime power in Europe during the early stages of the Age of Discovery. So yet again, humble beginnings. So to continue with the exploration, the Portuguese have now crossed Cape Bojador, and thanks to the persistence of Henry the Navigator and the modest hauls of slaves that are probably paying some bills, the expeditions can press on. In 1441, a Portuguese explorer named Dinis Diaz reaches Cape Blanco, a bit further south than Cape Bojador, still in the Sahara Desert. Dinis Diaz was appointed by Henry the Navigator to take slaves to minimize the costs of the voyages, but as they press on, the economic returns aren't always there. In one trip of 1445, Africans with poison arrows killed 20 out of the 22 sailors who came ashore for the raid. But thanks to Prince Henry's determination and Mansa Musa's legend, everyone knows there's a pot of gold on the other side of the rainbow. 
they press on, even past Cape Blanco. In 1444, Dinis Diaz reaches Cape Verde, which is roughly the point at which the Sahara ends and tropical Africa starts, in the modern country of Senegal. To imagine it in your head, this is the westernmost part of Africa. The part of West Africa that sticks out, think of just the tip of that before it starts curving back inwards. Dinis Diaz was responsible for making a breakthrough past two capes as of 1444, Cape Blanco and Cape Verde. Until now, the Portuguese have hugged the coast and mostly encountered tribals. Well, now as Africa becomes more tropical and lush, they're going to encounter population centers. These places are going to have thriving slave markets. So for Europeans, a tipping point in the exploration of Africa. At Cape Verde, the Portuguese would encounter the Kingdom of Senegal, known as the Jolof Empire. This empire had Islamic elements, much like the rest of West Africa, but was largely traditional African religions. And so they were not mortal enemies of the Portuguese like some of the other Islamic empires of North Africa. They also weren't as exposed to the world of the Crusades, etc. The Jolof Empire were also a vassal state of Mali. Though at the time the influence of Mali was already waning, finally Prince Henry's explorers have touched a limb of Mansa Musa's empire. Reaching the Kingdom of Senegal causes a change of attitude in the Portuguese. The raids until now weren't massively profitable, and were dangerous, and hell, if defeating tribals is so hard, taking on a West African kingdom on home turf is simply out of the question. So the Portuguese realize their position and smartly shift to trade. They establish diplomatic relations with the kingdom of Jolof and offer their brass tubs and crockery and horses in exchange for slaves. Why send people ashore in the risky business of capturing slaves when you can have local experts capture them for you? The horses that Europeans would trade with the Jolof Empire would help the Jolof expand and grow and conquer more villages. And as the Jolof conquer more villages, they enslave people. And they send these slaves to the coast from where the slaves are traded with the Portuguese for more horses. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship for the Portuguese and the Jolof Empire. You could call it a virtuous cycle if the virtue wasn't slavery. I'd like to make another throwback to humble beginnings here. The Portuguese have gone from being aggressors towards tribals, so very much punching down and sometimes losing, to acknowledging an African kingdom as a trading equal and establishing equal diplomatic ties. The other European powers were quick to follow the Portuguese. The Spanish, British, and French would all establish diplomatic relations and trade with the Jolof Empire. Sure, diplomacy is always how it starts. And then the conquering begins not long after. Right? That's the story that we hear, that the British did in India, for example, establishing ties and diplomacy and trading posts, and what do you know, a few decades later, they own the place. Well, 
let's remember that the British conquest of India happens in the 1700s and 1800s, and we are currently, in this story, in the 1400s. How long would it take before a European power actually had the might and willpower to conquer Senegal? Take a guess. 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. But it will be 400 years before the French colonize Senegal. And the world is going to look very, very different by then, right? The 1700s, 1800s are an extremely different time than the 1400s, where we are is still the humble beginnings. And to make this period even more of a tipping point, another major historical event takes place which tips the scales of how desperately Europeans will need slaves as a resource. In 1453, the Ottomans conquer Constantinople. It's hard to state how devastating this is for the Christian world of the time. It was the last remaining capital of the Roman Empire, controlled by the only credible successor state of the Roman Empire. This is where many modern historians mark the end of what we know as the medieval era, the end of the Romans, who had dominated the Mediterranean world from 100 BCE to 1453. Towards the latter centuries, weakened, sure, but still occupying a spiritual and emotional leadership nonetheless. But it's not just emotional, it's economic too. Constantinople was a major hub of slaves going into Europe, and now it's closed for business. It was a hub of trade in general, actually. It connected the Silk Road, which connects to India and China, and now closed. And just like how Berbers wouldn't trade gold with the Christians at Ceuta, the Ottomans aren't going to open their slave markets to Europeans. So this increases the pressure on Europe to find a new source of slaves. Now, by the 1450s, the Portuguese were doing a modest 1,000 slaves per year from their various West African trading posts. And these slaves are being sent either back to Europe, from where they can be sold, or to the settler islands of Madeira or the Azure Islands, from where they can be put to work. They need people to do the hard work in the hot sun, and European farm workers were simply not used to this kind of weather. As the West African slave trade opens before Prince Henry's eyes, and as his people close in on Mansa Musa's river of gold, Prince Henry will die in the year 1460 at the age of 66. It seems that history is full of people dying with unfulfilled wishes, only for their projects to go on to be more famous than they ever could have dreamt. In 1471, a decade after Prince Henry's death. He would have been 77 years old if he'd lived until then. The Portuguese reach a town that they call El Mina, and everyone in this town is wearing gold. El Mina sits in what is today Ghana. The Portuguese, upon reaching, finally realizing that they've reached the fabled river of gold, they don't just walk in and start taking the stuff. They may have a navigational advantage at sea, but it's certainly not something that enables them to impose their will on mainland Africa. And as we looked at, it won't be the case for another few hundred years. 
The Portuguese quickly realize the importance of the location they just discovered and request permission from a local chief to establish a fort at Elmina. For its use, they would pay tribute to two local kingdoms. Elmina sits on the border between two African kingdoms. This fort would become a major point of contention between European powers for hundreds of years going forward. The Portuguese, the Dutch, the Spanish, they would all fight over Elmina. But as of 1482, the Portuguese start construction and they're going to hold Elmina for long enough to make full use of its resources. The name Elmina literally means the mine because it has an abundance of gold mines. What the Portuguese have is anything else that they can trade and an advantage of having access to all the goods of Europe, which they can bring by ship and trade with the people of Elmina, who would think that gold is very cheap, so they would trade gold for anything. The Portuguese will buy not just gold, but also ivory, spices, peanuts, and let's not forget, slaves. For it, they'll provide brass and glass beads. So the Portuguese are making money on what's known as arbitrage. Gold is cheap in Elmina, while glass and brass are hard to come by. And the reverse is true in Europe, where brass is probably considered cheap, and gold is obviously hard to come by. So this starts a gold rush. This whole area becomes known as the Gold Coast. As an example of just how much gold is on the table, in 1475, the Portuguese invade Castilian Spain. At the time, the King of Portugal, Afonso V, who is Henry the Navigator's nephew, he is known as Afonso the African. This may help put in perspective how much Portugal's rise and fate is tied to Africa. Well, the Portuguese know exactly where the money's coming from, and their king is called the African. Afonso supports a side of the Spanish Civil War, known as the War of Castilian Succession, and in 1475 he invades, but he fails to take over. A few decades before, such a move would have been suicide. Three years after his invasion, in 1478, the Portuguese, who were more experienced and better organized at sea, would defeat the Castilians off the Gold Coast in the Battle of Guinea. In this battle, they capture a fleet of 33 Spanish ships that were on their way from Ghana, where the gold is at, to Spain. And the Portuguese got so much gold in this battle from that single raid that they paid for their entire invasion three years earlier. That's how much gold is at stake here. One shipment can pay for an entire invasion army. It's an economic transformation. Something to note is that the Battle of Guinea was Europe's first ever colonial naval battle in the Atlantic. This will set the trend of global warfare for centuries to come. So in 1479, the two powers get together and sign a treaty to end the War of Castilian Succession. The Portuguese will get exclusive rights to African exploration and the Spanish need to get a license to visit any Portuguese territories. The Spanish will only get to keep the Canary Islands. Now, 
Portuguese brassware and horses are valuable for West Africans, but there's a thing that Africans hold in higher value in medieval times. The goods that hold real sway in West Africa are Asian in origin. West Africans specifically, considering their hot climate, have a preference for Indian clothing. So this sets off another quest in Portugal. Reach India and you can trade with the Indians. You can get their fine goods and trade it with Africans for even more gold and more slaves. In 1486, 15 years after discovering Elmina and after establishing dominance over the Spanish in West Africa, King Joao II appoints Bartolomeo Diaz to sail around the southern tip of Africa to find a way to India. If the name Diaz sounds familiar, it's because we spoke about his father, Dinis Diaz, who sailed around Cape Blanco and Cape Verde on behalf of Prince Henry, and now it's time for him to step into his father's shoes. But if you think the Spanish are going to sit by and let the Portuguese steal a route to India from right under their noses, think again. Rather than compete with the Portuguese who dominate West Africa and are inching ever closer to a potential route to Asia, the Spanish send an explorer westwards. People had known the Earth is round for a long time, though many had failed in attempting to circle it by ocean. The next in this line of risk-takers would be a man by the name of Christopher Columbus. In 1492, Columbus sets out on his voyage using the then-conquered Canary Islands as a supply base. After being at sea for a few weeks, he reaches some islands in the Caribbean. But in doing so, he sets in motion the end of a world and the start of a new one. We'll be right there to see just what kind of world emerges on the other side. This is Ashrit Parvangada's Tipping Points. See you next time.